Taking a night walk here, getting out a little later than I planned. Yeah, it's funny, you know, I'm a night owl. I don't know, I always feel like criminal being out at night these days. My old house where I used to live for many years, it was a lot easier just to kind of come and go. When you're in a super suburban feeling neighborhood, it's always like, huh. You always, you always feel just suspicious. I would say it's, it's comparable to when you go in a store and don't buy anything. You always have that feeling of guilt, like you're doing something wrong. Not because you're not buying anything, but because you seem like a thief. Everybody feels that way. You go into a store, you walk out, and you're just like, oh man, they, they think I stole something. Kind of the same feeling when you go out after a certain time of night. Like, it's only like 10.40. But once you start... For me, it's like once you get into 11 o'clock. I feel like until 11 o'clock, I don't, I don't start to have that feeling. And then after 11, I'm always like, I just seem suspicious. It's, it's always, it still blows my mind, though, that more people don't walk at night. Because, you know, it's one thing if you go to bed at 9, 8, 9 p.m., but, you know, a lot of people, especially on a Friday night, stay up pretty late. And I get it with women. You know, I, I understand if you're a woman why you wouldn't go out for a walk after dark, especially after 10, 11 p.m. But I'm, I'm always shocked that I, just, I don't see more men just out for a stroll. And the ones you do see are freaks, myself among them. But just a quick announcement for anybody who still listens to these monologues, but... Some friends and I finally launched our debut episode of Mob Archaeologists on YouTube. Just, uh, you know, it's technically lacking. You know, it was a Zoom call with video. With video. And there's four of us. And we've had, you know, who knows how many hours of phone conversations and conference calls. And so it's a whole new thing talking over video. Because I've never met any of these guys. We're all very deep mafia researchers who really, really care about, you know, accurately mapping out what this organization is. I won't say too much about it, but if you're at all interested, mob archaeologists on YouTube, it's definitely not for the average person. It's, you know, it's for intermediate, it's for people who are already very familiar with the subject. And, uh, you know, everybody involved. I mean, one of the guys involved, he's an older guy who's been researching this longer than I've been alive. And so it's a good, it's a, it's a good range of knowledge, and we agree on a lot of things. I'm hoping we, because we disagree on some other things, and I'm hoping that comes up on the show. But, yeah, Mob Archaeologists, the first episode is about Lucky Luciano. We talk about everything. <laughs> aside from him too and what's interesting is Michael DeLeonardo the former Gambino member that we talked to he named our show and he really pushed us over the edge <laughs> pushed us over the edge you know, he pushed us past the finish line as far as getting it going in the last few months he launched his own YouTube show and he's been giving us a lot of encouragement you know I wrote an article for my Substack with his help you know, I've been in touch with him for a few years, and he's become a friend, you know, he, I, I don't call him and chat, but, you know, we have these conversations, phone conversations, he's a very philosophical, insightful guy, you start to, when you actually start to talk to some of these guys, you know, some of them are just brutes, but there's also a lot of these guys who are very sophisticated, like they grew up on the streets, but, 
you, it's a good example of why education isn't everything. Where a guy like him, who he's very socially intelligent for one, and just, you know, he, he, it just comes across. There's a natural charisma, and we're going to have him on our show as well, and we're supposed to be on his show as well, because he, he does a show with this guy who's helping him out. But it's exciting to have it done, you know, I've been wanting to do something like that for a long time with other people, you know, on my Substack, I've done some solo shows, but it's just not the same. I think when you're discussing something like Cosa Nostra or the Mafia, having other researchers to bounce off of, it's cool. And it went really well. You really get to see people's skill sets. It's kind of funny because I was just talking about that play-by-play versus color commentary thing and how one of the reasons why football announcers, NFL announcers are good at what they do is because they have a guy who does the play-by-play. He sticks to the facts. He keeps things centered on the game. And then you have the other guy who kind of expands and he he goes off in different directions. And I think that dynamic is important for anything. Where a subject like this, like doing this episode, you know, one of the guys, you know, he kind of kept reeling it back into the original kind of theme or topic we were talking about. And a couple of us were just going off. There's another guy who I know in conversation I mean, he and I have been in touch for who knows how many years, you know? And, uh, you know, he's the type of guy who will talk at length. But when you put him in front of a camera and a microphone, you know, he's a little more reluctant, you can tell. I mean, not everybody... I mean, I'm, I'm very self-conscious of being on a video and everything. So that's new to me. Even though I did those silly little night school, whatever they were, school night TV episodes years ago. It's still different when it's being recorded with other people. You can't delete it. It's just warts and all. But it went really well overall. I think there's a lot to improve on too, which is always the best when you feel like things go well, but there's also something to improve on. Um, So enough about that. Just if you're interested, you can just type in like mob archaeologists Lucky Luciano, and Luciano is somebody who I never would have had an interest in talking about. He's one of the most famous mafia leaders in history, and Michael suggested that we talk about him a little bit, and uh, I think it was actually a good starting point, because you know I, I have no interest in talking about those guys who have been widely covered, but I think untangled, but most of the coverage of those guys is so mythologized, it's filled with so much bullshit, that actually having people like us who have really scrutinized the evidence and information. It allowed us to kind of, you know, branch off into stuff that we did want to talk about. So I think it was a good idea. Yeah, you can just look up mob archaeologists, Lucky Luciano, if you're interested. Anyway, just taking a a criminal night walk here. And uh, it's funny, too, because I just passed a guy on my street, kind of down the street from my house. Just a, a young man, looked like a young man. With his hood up, walking slowly. And I was very suspicious of him, but I'm like, you know, that's how people see me when I'm out. I probably seem so suspicious, just that guy in a hat with a ponytail walking around late at night. It's funny though, you know, I talk about, I've talked on here about, you know, how people will test you politically. And uh, it's not just that though. There have been a few instances in recent years of things, as things have become heavily politicized. 
there have been some very specific instances where I know that somebody is testing me to see how I respond. It happened uh, with summer 2020. A longtime friend of mine, you know, invited me to a, a protest, which is kind of an odd invitation. And, and I know this person's a really good-hearted person, but I could tell it was a test. I could tell that it was coming from a place of, oh, I don't know what he's thinking about this. I'm going to encourage him to go to this protest with me. And I tactfully turned it down. You know, I, I have no reason to, to be mean or assume the worst. But, you know, you have that psychic sense where I was like, oh, she's testing me. She's trying to see if I go along with it or where I stand. Because things were so polarizing that summer. Another time was when the, when the vac was brand new. The friend of mine who messaged me out of the blue, someone I haven't seen in a long time, who asked me if I'd gotten it. After having already had some disagreements with this person a couple months earlier, I could tell it was a test to see if I was anti-vac. I just knew. I just knew. And when I told him, yeah, I got it, because I did. I got the first round or whatever, the first two shots. No interest in getting it again, but I, I went ahead and got the first two shots, whatever. It seemed like the path of least resistance at the time. I wasn't invested in it. But I remember his response was, few. And I was like, is that few? Is that few from, is he relieved that I got it and I'm going to be safe? Or is he relieved that I got it and I passed his test? In those cases, I, I really did get the sense that I was being tested. It was so out of the blue. The thing is, people bring things up too, and they're not testing you, but it's just kind of these political issues have become small talk. You know, politics didn't used to be small talk. It, it is normal, especially depending on your beliefs, to, to just bring those things up casually. And yesterday was a good example of that, where I had dinner with my friend's family. My friend is out of town, my friend's not around. But I had dinner with uh, the family. Really nice, really wonderful evening. But we were taking a walk, and my friend's mom asked, you know, if I was watching the January 666 hearings. And I, I'm not. It's nothing for me to say. I mean, there's just, I didn't even know those were still going on. I don't even know what they're talking about, actually. I have no, I have zero clue what those hearings are even talking about at this point. And I said, oh, no, I haven't. But that's one of those things where it's like, I, I really didn't want the conversation to continue. Not because I even really have an opinion on it. But to me, it was just sort of like shit. Like, that's one of those examples of like somebody who you're, you're not super close with, but you like, and they like you. And it's unimportant. Like, there's nothing to be gained from having a discussion of, about January 666. There's definitely nothing to be gained from talking about hearings about it that I haven't watched. It was early on in the evening, so, you know, that was it. It never came up again. Nothing, nothing related to that came up again. But it just stood out to me because it's like... This stuff just comes up all the time. And I don't know if... It, it, I really don't think this was a test at all. I know it wasn't. But if I were to say, you know, the wrong thing, I mean, that, that would really disrupt that interaction. And I'm just aware of it, because it, it happens so much. 
you know, it's it's why I know I'm not crazy because, you know, you hear some people say like, oh, nobody, normal people don't care about any of that stuff. And I'm like, I, my experience, maybe it's where I live. Although I, I don't think geography really plays that big of a role in this kind of thing anymore. And to be fair, I wouldn't want the opposite either. Even if I agreed with somebody, I don't like to just... I don't like to just have that sort of circle jerk about things you agree with. Unless there's something funny or interesting to say about it. I'm just not that interested. And it's funny today because I was running some errands and I got a message from a friend I haven't heard from in a long time. Somebody who I, I have a very high opinion of. Just haven't stayed in touch with her recently. And, uh, you know, we were back and forth a little bit, like, how you doing? You know, this is a very fun, intelligent person, so it was nice to hear from her. It was funny that she saw me. I always feel very exposed when someone sees me in public. I'm like, when someone's in a car and they see me crossing a crosswalk or whatever I'm doing, I'm like, shit. I almost feel like they saw me using the rest, you know, saw me in the pissing on the side of the road. Because I probably just have shark eyes. Because when I walk, I mean, I'm... I'm so hyper-vigilant, it's like my head's darting around. But anyway, you know, it was, it was a nice exchange, but, it, you know, she, she mentioned being upset about uh, this Nord Stream thing. You know, this, this oil pipeline that was damaged, which I don't know anything about. I heard about it. I heard about it. I don't, I don't have any... Aside from just the fact that it, it's terrible for energy, you know, it's very bad for, you know, people... It's it's polluting the ocean, and it's very bad for the people who are impacted by it. Beyond that, I don't know anything about it. You know, I, I even though I haven't been paying attention to the news or anything, this stuff still you still absorb this stuff through osmosis. And from what I understand, it's yet another thing that has polarizing views. Like some people think the U.S. or their allies did it. Some people think that Putin did it as this sort of self-sabotage to make a political point or whatever. I have no idea. I have no idea. I have zero idea. I don't trust anybody on that stuff. I don't trust Putin about this oil pipeline that obviously plays into his politics. I really don't trust the U.S. about it. I don't trust the U.S.'s allies. I have no control. My opinion doesn't matter. If I were interested in it, I'd I'd like to see the evidence laid out, but when it comes to these deceptive acts of sabotage, you know, we often don't find the truth out until way later. I try not to have a reaction or an opinion to these things beyond just the fact that it's bad for a lot of people. It's really bad. But yeah, my friend mentioned just being upset about that, and I was like, oh yeah, because I don't know what to say, you know? That stuff comes up, but it's just normal. You know, those things are, are a normal part of conversation. They're world events. I don't blame anybody for wanting to talk about them. But it, it's those, those sort of things just, uh, they put you in a weird place. When those things come up, they put you in a weird place. Especially if it's something you don't know about, that you're kind of skeptical about, but you don't have an opinion on. Because I, I really truly don't. I have zero opinion. I saw the photos of that. Saw the photos of this, looked like a whirlpool. If you didn't tell me what it was, I'd be like, there's a whirlpool. 
There's a whirlpool. As far as I'm concerned, it is a, just a whirlpool, a magical whirlpool that appeared. Somebody said there's a pipe down there. See, I don't even know if I believe that. <laughs> I don't even know if I believe there's a pipe down there. Oh, there's nothing down there. It's just, it's a whirlpool. But I mean, it, I, I don't like to use that stuff as like a reason to isolate or to feel alienated when I don't need to. Because it, it doesn't make you feel that way. It doesn't, it doesn't change how I feel about people bringing that up. They're welcome to. They're welcome to say what they want. But it's just, you know, two days in a row. It's like a couple of people who I, I have a very high opinion of, you know, brought up these issues, these larger issues. And what's interesting about these issues is they're, they're different from just things happening, I feel like. You know, because I, I don't know, I feel like there was a time when I was younger where things happened and people would talk about them. Like, you know, 9-11 is, you know, the big example. But it's like 9-11 happened and initially all you're going to be talking about is just what happened. You know, these, these guys crashed a plane. Maybe we know who did it. Yeah, we do in that case. But there's not really a lot more, unless unless you were into some, you know, nine eleven. Maybe nine eleven isn't the best example because nine eleven did bring out these polarizing views where there were people who responded very harshly and were just like, "We need to just drop bombs in the Middle East," and that justified this, you know, this the U.S. going to you know Afghanistan which was a little more justified based on the way things were framed but then the Iraq war was done shortly thereafter and i i didn't respond well to the patriotism of the time just this empty patriotism where people were passionate it wasn't empty it wasn't empty of passion but it was empty in the sense that it was it was purely reactive the thing about reacting is, you know, it, it overtakes you and you don't feel empty when you're reacting. But in the aftermath, you realize how empty you feel. It's a lot like getting mad at someone you care about. Or in the moment of being mad at somebody, you're reacting. You're upset at your girlfriend. But when it's over, you feel, you feel silly and you feel empty. That feeling doesn't stay with you and you almost feel like a different person was doing that. And, uh, I don't know, I mean, maybe, maybe there was never a time when people just reacted to an event as it was, and were like, this event happened, and that's it. I have something, you know, I just want to talk about the fact that it happened. You know, everything kind of has a political slant, and there are so many different theories, we have so much information, and there's so much information that... You can apply any set of facts or, or you can apply any circumstantial evidence to fit that theory. With the Nord Stream thing. You can see where, you know, there's circumstantial evidence to support, you know, all sorts of different theories. I don't know what's more valid. I have no clue. I don't care, actually. But then you put yourself in a weird situation when you don't react to that stuff, too. Because it's like not reacting is suspect. So it just kind of, I don't know, it sucks. Beyond the, the fact that these events and these issues suck. Because, you know, when my friend's mom brought up January 666 hearings, I'm just like, yeah, it sucks. January 666, it sucks. The Nord Stream pipeline, it sucks. 
there's, there's nothing uh, there's nothing about those situations no matter how, where you're coming from on those it just sucks but anyway uh, I don't know I'm feeling alright other than that I mean I'm feeling alright even I mean those things didn't bring me down I'm just, I'm just aware of them I'm just very conscious of polarizing issues and it's especially weird when it's a polarizing issue that you yourself don't really know much about you know that's that's one of the weird things is like because i'm i'm a very ignorant person and i don't say that to be self-deprecating i'm just well aware of the things that i don't know much about like the things that i do know about i'm confident in, but there's not very many of them like doing this mafia podcast. The reason I feel confident talking about that stuff is because I've spent who knows how many borderline autistic hours just pouring over those details and discussing them. Things that most people who are even interested in Cosa Nostra and the mafia just would never care about. But I'm like, this this one FBI informant said this, and then this guy said this in this other place. Like, how can we reconcile these things? Oh, and there's this other thing. Yeah, that's how I am with that stuff, and I feel very, very comfortable in that, in my understanding of that stuff. But when it comes to everything else, like, of course, I, I talk about, I talk out of my ass about things I, I'm ignorant about. Usually, trying to just, usually, I'm just trying to find some kind of interesting angle or something funny. But it's like I, I, I know the entire time I don't know anything about this. But I. Uh, I don't know, I want to go back to just, you know, you realize people's strong suits and things. Like, thinking about this podcast, here I am, I'm doing my my weird monologue podcast, talking about this other podcast that I just became a part of. <laughs> but still, like, it, you really, doing it with different people, because, I mean, that's been the thing. Like, I'm, when I started doing this show, I always imagined I would have certain guests. I always imagined I would have Miles. It just never really worked out. And when Miles and I do spend time together or talk, we just prefer to talk to each other and not have it be on record. And it's kind of hard, you know, it's, it's kind of weird. And as this show got weirder and weirder and more just self-involved, it's like, I was just like, yeah, I wouldn't even want to bring somebody else into this. There's no audience for this. This is just my own private shit that I probably shouldn't even be saying. But like now doing a show with different people, it's really interesting because it's performative. It's it's different than the conversations we've had. I mean, some of these guys, you know, we'll talk for six hours on the phone. It's it, like it's nothing. But now when you know it's being recorded and you know that this is for other people, you have to acknowledge that. You have to react differently. You're now performing. And you have to think a little bit about the audience. But seeing people's strong suits, like one of the guys, yeah, he's like the play-by-play guy. He'll bring things back to the, the theme or the topic. And that's a, that, that, that's a virtue. It's nice when you have different components, though, you know, because I wouldn't be interested in just listening to that. I don't listen to podcasts or anything where it's just a play-by-play. But when you have someone who keeps people grounded and can be like, oh, here's the facts we're going to go back to. I'm going to keep things on topic. 
it's really good to have somebody like that and it's good that he's a part of it whereas like i was saying there's two of us where we our conversations can go from here to here to there and then there and then there like our conversations are mutant this thing makes us think of this and there's just different conversational styles too different personalities and like one of the guys who's on it i've become really good friends with he has just such an impressive range of knowledge it's wild actually because he's newer to the subject than we are but it's one of those guys who processes information gets it really gets it and becomes fluent in it very quickly and what i've learned about this guy is he's that way with all kinds of things he has a really wide range of knowledge like his wife is uh i don't know what she is but i think she works in in the medical field and somehow like somebody on a phone call we had had a medical problem and he started talking about it and he knew all like and, and not just somebody who's blowing hot air like yeah i know about health and medicine he really seemed to know the material on a scientific level without being uh without like lording over anybody about it and i'm just like man that's one thing i'm very ignorant about you could tell me there's just wires inside of my body you could tell me that my body's just it's wires with a bunch of stuffing paper stuffing you could tell me underneath my skin there's just like a thin layer of paper mache and i'd be like you know what i, I can't prove you wrong i'm going to defer to you on that but some people just have that wide range of knowledge about all kinds of things for me it's just very specific if i'm passionate about something i don't try to learn everything about it i just obsess to me it's like a puzzle and it's something you have to look for from different people like you never want everybody to be the same for that very reason it's it's you know getting back to politics it's one of the reasons why i feel like it's so necessary to have conservative politics in addition to liberal politics and and something in between those things balance each other out and i don't know that there's any way to stabilize that either though you know i don't know that there's any way to stabilize american politics in such a way that people see each other for their virtues where oh you know you're you're conservative that means you have not just certain beliefs as they correspond to law and politics but you have a certain temperament you have a certain philosophical outlook you're cautious you're willing to say hey let's halt the brakes on that but then it's good that there are people who are progressive who say hey we can't just stagnate like this because we know what happens you know with conservatism when it stagnates or has too much power they start controlling everybody they start telling you how to live they start policing you that was the sort of environment that i came of age in where there was evangelism and an attempt to control people through that lens and you know we we can see what's happening happening with progressivism where same thing it reaches a point where when it has too much power you know it, it starts trying to control and police people and it stops recognizing the virtue on the other side 
because there is virtue. It's a good thing. Like in the same way that being part of a team, it's good to have different personality types. I see, the, I see politics the same way on sort of a macro, micro level. But on a micro level, having multiple people collaborating as part of a team with different sensibilities. I mean, I've had that creatively, like playing in a band and stuff. I've been the conservative voice, even though I'm a, I'm a creative person. I come up with ideas, and I like ideas to be unique and original. I've had discussions with good friends of mine when we're working on something creatively where they want to do this crazy thing, and I'm like, no, 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 no. But a balance is struck. And if you have good chemistry with somebody, it's the perfect balance. Because you keep them or they keep you from going too far, too out there with it. But they keep you from being boring. They keep you from just doing things by the numbers. But it's very hard to see that because you have to have a top-down view. And when one voice becomes more dominant, I think everybody suffers. Like this podcast, for example, like I wouldn't want to be a part of it if it was just like a play-by-play, just essentially reading facts off. But the fact that we have somebody who's more oriented around that, you know, we're all fact-based. But it's good that there's somebody who, who wants to thread things that way in more of a, a linear way. And it's good that there's a couple of us who will just go off. But you have to have kind of a top-down view, which is the most difficult thing to, to have. It's very difficult to get that vantage point. Um, and to also not be controlling. I mean, that's something that's very hard for me. Being a very self-contained person, I feel like I'm in therapy here, but being a very self-contained person, one of the reasons why I, I'm so solitary is because I like to have a lot of control over my situation and what's going on. And it's not just for my own benefit. It's also so that I don't subject other people to my tyranny. Because if I care about something, like if it's creative, for example, I can be an absolute creative tyrant. Because I don't want my name, I don't want my time invested in something that I'm not going to like. And it's not just about me, though. It's about, like, I don't... Because I have subjected people to an ego blast. I have subjected people to my tyranny, and I hate the feeling. I don't even like to control the jukebox. If I'm at a party, I never want to have the responsibility of choosing the music people listen to. Because I know how sensitive people are to music. And there's no personal investment in that. Like, yeah, people do have egos about their taste. People, people do... DJs have big egos. DJs have big egos. But I never want to do that. Like, I never want to be the person who has that responsibility. Because I know that I, I know that I can endure bad music. I might not like it, and there's some music I can't endure. But it's like I can endure bad music if everybody else, is, if it's for the greater good. Because I'm not a part of that. I'm just there. 
But if it's something that I'm involved in, if it's something creative, if it's a product, that's a little different. But one of the reasons why I don't like to be the DJ, you know, obviously at one point this show was a, a pseudo radio show where I just played music. That's different. People have to seek it out. But the reason why I don't like to subject people to my music in the car or at a party or anywhere else is because, like, if they don't like it, I don't want to be responsible for that. And when someone has asked me to do that, like, I, I worked at an office where they tried to play this game that was, like, every day a different person is going to control what we listen to. It was awful. But I could deal with what other people wanted to listen to more than I felt like they could with what I wanted to listen to. It felt like too much pressure. I was just like, God, I want to choose something that's palatable to the broadest amount of people. I don't just want to play something super niche that only I'm going to like. I mean, it brings out just total neurosis and I become, it, it brings out the worst form of neurosis in me. And I feel way less neurotic when I have no power. And when I know that like nobody is being subjected to my tyranny, because I can be a horrible tyrant. That's why I would never endorse my way of thinking or my way of living. I wouldn't endorse it, and I certainly wouldn't enforce it. How's that sound? Wouldn't endorse it, and I certainly wouldn't enforce it. True, though, because I wouldn't want to be a, a leader or a, a king. Like... Anytime people have done what I want to do, like when people have bended to my will, I feel truly sick over it. But the difference is that, you know, I don't want any, anybody else to try to force me to bend to their will. So, you know, and that, that's, that's how I feel about life in a nutshell, you know. That's how I feel. I'm just like, I don't, I don't want anybody to bend to my will, even if I think it's right. And, I, you know, and the idea behind that is, in turn, I don't want anybody to coerce me or convince me. What I have to say, there's nobody I've talked to recently has brought up that weird performer who played the flute. I don't have anything to say about it. I have no opinion on it. I haven't even been checking the news or anything. But this stuff somehow crosses your radar just living your life, just doing anything logging into some account online, anything you do. I mean, if you, you go to these websites with your email and stuff, and like sometimes it just shows headlines. And I know that people are very upset about this. Very weird performer, I don't understand, playing this sacred flute. It doesn't mean anything to me. I understand to some people, like, that's their Lord of the Rings remake. And I understand why people are bothered by that because it is a symptom of everything else going on it does kind of fit in perfectly but it's, it's something i truly don't care about the reason i had any opinion at all about the lord of the rings remake without seeing it but just the principle of it because i do care about lord of the rings i do i do care about lord of the rings and uh i see that as a, more insidious but this thing with the flu, I don't know, I guess I've never responded much to, like, sacred American history. 
Like, I don't like people tearing down statues and doing all that stuff. I don't like this aggression. But when it comes to, like, the the sanctity of the founding fathers and stuff, it just, it's never really impacted me much one way or the other. Like, I was the teenager who didn't stand for the, the Pledge of Allegiance. And I had a teacher who told me, just sit there and be weird. This little lady, this little lady who was my te- my English teacher, I think it was my sophomore or junior year of high school, probably sophomore year, I don't remember, but went to some assembly and I didn't stand. She goes, you need to stand. And I said, well, I, I didn't make a big deal. I didn't argue. It wasn't, it wasn't my moment where I was taking a stand, literally. I just said, oh, I'm not going to stand. And she goes, okay, just sit there and be weird. Difference is, I would I would stand now just because I don't know. I just would. I kind of had to do that, not because it means anything else to me, but you know, I had an experience too. Uh, an experience. I had an experience. I was at a football game with my dad. Probably around that same time, we went to an NFL game, and uh, they were doing the national anthem, and I stood. And my, you know, my dad's kind of a path of least resistance guy, too. He's a rebel, a very hardcore, independent rebel. But at the same time, he doesn't like to call attention to himself. Like my dad's own rebellion against things, he doesn't like to, to call attention to himself. He's not doing it for attention. He's not doing it to make a statement. He just doesn't like certain things and going along with them. But we're at this NFL game. We both stood. I didn't think anything of it. I was just standing up for the national anthem. And this little old man, he wasn't even seated near us. He had to get up and walk down the stairs to where we were sitting. I didn't even know he was behind me. But he walked down the stairs. He was very frail, too. He was old. And I didn't know he was there. And all of a sudden, I hear this harsh voice in my ear. He goes, you need to take your hat off. And I was taken aback because I didn't know this little old man was behind me and honestly I, I wasn't doing that of disrespect I, I didn't I just didn't even think to do it like I wear a lot of hats and I didn't think I didn't even think about it it was just it's it's part of my body at that point like if I'm wearing a hat it's just part of my body but you could tell in this old man's mind he had already formed an opinion or he'd made an assumption about why I still had my hat on. Like in his head, I had that hat on to disrespect America. And my dad was just like, oh, just take it off. I could tell my dad was as shocked as I was. We were both, you know, we're people who don't like to be disturbed by strangers. And this, this old man just, his voice was so harsh. It was frail, but very harsh. He was, he was very old to the point where he had trouble walking and he was like a hunchback and he got out of his seat walked all the way down to where we were sitting which is a ways away from where he was and just just let out this like harsh whisper in my ear to take my hat off and what's funny it's a certain type of guy because i knew these guys in school football players so i knew and they were telling their own story like that where they were at a husky game the university of washington and one of them didn't take his hat off during the national anthem too and similarly an old man probably a different one but the same archetype came up to them and goes you need to take your hat off and one of these guys fired back at him take your pants off 
And the guy, they said the guy just like had no idea what to say. He said, take your hat off. And he said, take your pants off. I was like, that's such a good response. <laughs> I didn't say that. But uh, I remember them telling the story. Because a lot of young guys have that experience where like some some crazy old man just assumes you're doing it to be disrespectful. It's just something you don't even think about. It's it's so ritualistic. It's a weird rule because you don't even know why that rule exists. Like, I don't know why that exists. It's You know, there's always this thing about, oh, take your hat off indoors. Take your hat off for a lady. Take your hat off during the national, uh, national anthem. I've never, I'm, I'm sure I could look it up, but that just shows you how these unimportant, irrelevant things become almost like a commandment where it's like somehow wearing your hat became correlated with showing disrespect or taking your hat off became correlated with showing respect and I like to show respect as irreverent as I can be I actually really enjoy being respectful too I enjoy both in different situations. But it's one of those things you're just told. Like I never I've never heard a single explanation. And and it would be an explanation. Cuz that's like a lie that people turned into a truth. Like it's a lie. <laughs> it's a lie that taking your or that leaving your hat on is an act of disrespect. That's something that somebody came up with. There must have been some situation or circumstance or context why that made sense, but it shows you total nonsense can become institutionalized. Where the idea that like leaving your hat on during the national anthem, it became institutionalized like that. It's what I always say about, you know, anything can become an institution. It's what happens with hoarders. Where a pile of crap in your corner of your kitchen becomes an institution. It's the bricks behind the shed at my childhood house. There was this big pile of bricks, a big tower of bricks. It was hidden from view. It was in this weird little dark corner of my backyard, hidden behind a shed. Obviously, my parents used bricks for something when they were doing some sort of remodeling, doing something, and they had leftover bricks, and you're not going to just throw out leftover bricks. Maybe we'll use them someday. But my entire childhood, that stack of bricks was just behind the shed. And to me, it was like a monument. It was like an institution. Like in my head, I never thought about it. But the way I perceived that stack of bricks was like, oh, those are meant to be there. That pile of bricks is an institution. And it wasn't until I, it crossed my mind randomly. And the reason it crossed my mind, funny enough, I'd forgotten about it. It's not like my entire life I've gone around trying to figure out why there was a pile of bricks behind the shed. It was like years later, somebody found Glenn Danzig's house on Google Maps. And he just had this random pile of bricks in his front yard. And somebody was like, did you know that Dan... Because everybody treats anything Danzig does like a punchline. So somebody like wrote an article or something, made a blog post with like, Danzig has a pile of bricks in his front lawn. And then I think somebody found that they were gone later. And so it was this like little funny joke someone had, like Danzig had a pile of bricks. And like, what's funny though is people kind of viewed that 
as an institution too, like as if the pile of bricks in Danzig's yard was meant to be there. It's probably just the same exact reason we have a pile of bricks. I'm just like Danzig. But when I saw that, when, when I saw somebody wrote about that, when they were like, did you know Danzig has a pile of bricks in his yard? It made me think about the pile of bricks in my childhood backyard. And I was like, it's funny. I always just kind of looked at them as, oh, they're meant to be there. They're there for a reason. It's an institution. It's the same thing that happens with the hoarders. You know, I have family members who are hoarders. And they're not gross, dirty hoarders. Like, there's no dead animals or garbage. But they have a stack of newspapers as tall as a human being. And it's like one day they just, like... The way it was explained to me is that they would read part of a newspaper and they would say, like, oh, there's more in this I want to read later. And then they would never get around to reading it, so they would, they would put it aside. And then every time they read a newspaper, like, they started putting them there. And, and pretty soon, that's the tower of newspapers. It's a lot like opening Wikipedia tabs or a bunch of tabs on an internet site. Like, when I'm doing some sort of dive into something and I just keep opening new tabs... It's always like, oh, I'm going to read more of this later. I'm going to finish more of this later. It always happens to me with TV tropes. There's a website, TV tropes, that I go to like once a year. And this happens every time. You know, it's about cliches. It's about tropes that you see in media and entertainment, anything like that. And it's really funny. It's really well done. And it points out things that you've always noticed. Common tropes in stories, gimmicks. I love that site, but it's one of those sites where you end up with 50 tabs open, and you're like, oh, I'll, I'll look at that one later. I'll finish reading that later. And every time I do it, it's not uncommon for a month later, two months later, for me to still have all those tabs open. And I've totally lost interest in ever reading anything on, you know, I, I burn myself out. With a site like TV Tropes, I'm like, oh, I've read so much about these. I've, I've tired myself out. But the tabs stay there because in my mind, I'm still going to do it. It's like hoarding. When you have 50 tabs open on your browser of things that you're planning on reading later, that's hoarding. We don't think of it that way. But it's the same exact psychology. And because I have uh, some, some level of hoarding in my family history... I, I kind of, it's not something I really have to think about, but I am very conscious of it. You know, I, I experienced that at my old house. I had lived there for so long. My mind was in such a place of chaos that I would just stack things places. Like I went through a, a period where I would get really stoned, I would eat edibles, and I would just go to thrift stores, junk stores, used bookstores. And I don't even know why I was doing this for a while, but I was buying like old comic strip books. Like when they compile a bunch of an old comic strip into a book. And if it was one that was particularly weird, weird, I would just buy it. It was like a dollar. Got a half, you know, I have the, the half price books outlet here. It's not just half price books, it's the outlet. So everything's super cheap. It's harder to find good stuff, but you do still find a lot of good stuff if you go regularly. You can get CDs for like two bucks, books of all kinds for two bucks, four bucks. 
And so I would just go there, be really stoned, and I'd find these comic strip books or anything like that, coffee table books, art books, anything. And I would just buy them, and I'd be like, oh, I'm gonna, one day I'm going to like be sitting at home bored, and I'm going to go through this and read it and look at the comic strips. Never did. Never. It was like opening a tab, except it was a physical book in my house. And finally, like, it was about a year, maybe, maybe not even, before I moved out, I just kind of assessed my surroundings, and I was like, my coffee table has two towers on it. Because what I would do is I would come home from the used bookstore, and I would put whatever that book was onto the coffee table, and then when I did it again, I would put another book on there. And before I knew it, like, that one stack of books had turned into two, and now there's just, and I kind of like the aesthetics of it, you know, I kind of like the aesthetics of just having piles of books around, but my whole house started to become that way. Like, it wasn't crammed with stuff. Like, I wasn't turning into a full-blown hoarder, but I was starting to notice, like, that had become an institution. The pile of books that I'm never going to read have become an institution. They're like open browser tabs just sitting there. Well, I'll read those later. Whatever whim that I was feeling when I bought those at the store, I never regained that. But I also didn't have the motivation to get rid of them. And finally, I was like looking at them. I'm like, I need to get rid of these. And then I went to my closet, and I had this closet that I'd turned into the box closet. Anytime I would buy a new appliance or anything, I'd have like, there were like four vacuum boxes. I didn't even know I had that many vacuums over the years. Just random appliance boxes. It was this big, deep closet, and I had so much closet space now. So much closet space. So much closet space, and it had this curtain on it. It didn't have a door. There was this closet in my bedroom that had no door, so I just put a curtain over it, and it completely hid the entire closet. And I realized, like, what I had been doing for all these years is when I would get something new that came in a box, I would just pull the curtain back and throw something in it. They weren't even stacked. And one day I was like, you know, I haven't even looked in that closet for three years. And so I, I looked in there, and sure enough, just a bunch of haphazardly thrown uh, boxes. A million dead spiders, dead ants, and boxes. And I was like, oh yeah, that, that became an institution. It just became the box closet. Initially, it was like, oh, I bought this appliance. I got to save the box. Maybe I'll be able to use the box. But I never went back and thought, like, oh, I should get rid of that box. It just got buried under a pile of boxes. So I, I totally understand the mentality that goes into hoarding. And when you get rid of stuff, that feeling of, like, oh, I'm going to miss this. And then when you get rid of it, you don't miss it. You don't ever think about it again. Like, in the last year, I've sold some things that I thought I really cared about. And, and in a way, I did. But I, I couldn't even list off most of them. There's maybe one or two things in that entire list that I sold out of desperation or something. I needed some quick money. And I'm just like, you know what? Like, most of those things, though, that I thought were important to me were just sitting in a closet. And I was never going to revisit them. There was never going to be that rainy day. What was I thinking? And there's something liberating about getting rid of that stuff. That's what hoarders are missing out on, is the liberation that comes from that sacrifice. Sacrificing things that you thought were important. And it's not really a sacrifice if it's not important. 
I think people have that mixed up. <laughs> you know, people, like, they think if you just get rid of anything, it's a sacrifice. But if it's not important to you in some way, it's not really much of a sacrifice. Because the whole point of a sacrifice is this is something you don't want to get rid of. This is something you don't want to do. But doing it is what makes that, a, you know, doing that is what makes it a sacrifice. If it's something you have no interest in, it's not of value to you. Well, it's not much of a sacrifice. Something has to be a value for you. Something has to be a value to you if it's a sacrifice. But even that, it's meaningful and it does something for you when you do it. And so, what hoarders miss out on is that feeling of this, the glory of sacrifice in a way. And usually, it's just material crap, but it just accumulates, it becomes an institution. But, uh,. Institutions are what got me going on all this and uh, had some reason for bringing it all up. Um, oh, the hat. You can see where everything kind of follows this logic where at some point in time there must have been some circumstantial reason, some sort of context where it made sense to see taking off your hat as a sign of respect. But people started taking it really seriously. It became ritualistic, and it, it became something that was so important to some people that they would get out of their seat in public, go down behind a teenager's ear, and whisper scream, because it was a whisper scream. It was an old man whisper scream to take my hat off. Like, that guy created it, and he didn't create it, but he, he was preoccupied with an institution that was based on total nonsense. It might, it might as well have been a lie. And if I had asked him, what's so important about me taking my hat off? He would have given me an explanation, but as I like to say, explanations are lies. You know, an explanation is almost always a lie. If he'd given me a description, if he could have described to me why wearing a hat during the national anthem was a worthwhile institution, Maybe I would have understood, but I don't think there really was a description. And what gets me about that is this old man didn't know what he created. I mean, he's definitely dead. He'd be 112 years old, whisper screaming on a level I don't even understand. He'd be a superhuman whisper screamer if he was still alive today. This was over 20 years ago. He'd be 120. I don't, I don't think he was 100. I don't think he was 100. <laughs> he was probably 80 years old, though. So he'd be like 100 years old today, whisper screaming about hats. But what always gets me about that is like, this is a good experience. Like, I'm at a football game with my dad. And that was the main way that my dad and I connected and still connect. My dad took me to every single Seahawks home game. My dad was one of the first... Uh, people to buy season tickets when the Seahawks were created 10 years before I was born. And, you know, I didn't live with them. My parents were divorced. So one of the main ways that my dad and I really spent quality time one-on-one -on -one, or with my grandpa and uncle or something, but like the main way that the men in my family spent time together was going to these games every week. So it's really, you know, at the time, it was just my life. I wasn't thinking like, oh, this is my special time with my dad, and someday I'm going to look back at this with nostalgia. You know, 
I was just like, I'm here with my dad. Like when you when you take that bigger picture look, it's like I'm here. Like I'm a, I'm a product of divorce. At an NFL game with my dad, you know, it costs money. It takes a lot of time. You know, it, it's a big thing. And we're all gonna enjoy this game that we love, called football. We're all here because we love football. There's this weird little ritual we do because we're Americans and before we do anything, we have to listen to this song and stand up. Kind of weird, but you know, humans have our rituals. And so it's a really nice thing that we're all there doing this. It's a really just nice moment. A bunch of men just gonna watch a game, a boy's there with his dad. And this little old man though, he sees me wearing a hat and he thinks, look at them, I know, I know exactly why he's doing that. He's doing that to disrespect everything, to disrespect this country. And he's so upset about it that he, he creeps down the stairs and he whisper screams in my ear about my hat. And it's an archetype, it's a certain sort of guy, it's a get off my lawn sort of old man. It's, everybody knows what, it's a mean old man. But it's just so funny to me. I, mean, I can laugh at it. At the time, I thought it was funny, too. I wasn't upset. I was shocked. I was taken aback. I was literally frightened by this sudden sound in my ear. But uh, I saw the humor in it myself. Like, I came home and told my mom. But it's just so funny to me that guy couldn't just be like, oh, the great thing about being in America, the real ritual is the fact that a boy is here with his dad who he doesn't see all the time. We're all just a bunch of men at the game. We're gonna watch a few hours of football, you know, etc. But it's funny to me that that guy, you know, whisper screams. <laughs> and uh, that's what that guy's getting out of the situation, this little old man. You know, that, that's how that guy enjoys, you know, his freedom. And, uh, you know, I get a kick out of that, but it's, it's just funny because you, you think this whole situation is a bigger testament to freedom than standing up for the pledge. This, this you know, the, the real ritual is just living this moment where we're all Americans and we're free to go to an NFL game with our dads and wear our hats. But to him, it's like too much of a focus on the ritual. It's like somebody who thinks meditation or beads are more important to your spiritual life than simply the way you live. That's what it's like. It's like going to a retreat, a Buddhist retreat, and somebody being like, oh, you didn't wear your beads. Oh, you're not wearing the right clothing. I mean, I'm going to go down every laundry list of shit like this in my childhood but it reminds me too when I did Taekwondo as a kid and we had to wear a gi I think I don't know if it's called a gi in Taekwondo but I know people call these things gis and uh, you know going to Taekwondo though and uh, you know my pants didn't fit me right <laughs> You know, I had the little white outfit, and my pants just, they never fit me right. And it wasn't even that they were the wrong size. It was just, it didn't, just didn't really fit my body right. They weren't comfortable. And so my mom bought me a pair of white sweatpants. And so I, for a while, I wore this pair of white sweatpants. You couldn't even tell. 
you just saw that I was wearing white pants. And it was fine. And there was one day where my instructor was down on his knees doing something. And he looks over at my pants. He looks over at my legs. I'm standing next to him. And he, his eyes squint. Hearing weird noises. But his eyes squint. And he reaches out. And he rubs the material of my pants between his fingers. And I felt this sense of doom. And he's like, these aren't the the proper pants he wasn't a jerk but he, he looked really serious and I was like yeah my pants don't fit me right and he's like you need to wear the proper pants and it's funny to me though because it's like it's like form over function like if you're teaching kids Taekwondo I understand there's something ceremonial about martial arts I understand there's something ceremonial about martial arts but it seems like you're you're getting distracted from the point. Like here you have a kid. It, it was I quit not because of that, but it's like I I stopped being interested. I had other things going on in my life. I didn't want to keep going to Taekwondo. I wasn't really getting much out of it. And uh, the point is though is like from that guy's point of view, I'm sure they tell them that. I'm sure he was taught that way that like you have to wear the proper uniform. But when you actually look at what's taking place. The cool thing about that situation is that I'm a little kid trying to learn a martial art and become disciplined, and I'm going to be more into that if I can just wear my white sweatpants that you wouldn't even notice unless you rub the material between your fingers like a freak. So what's more important, that I wear the proper pants or that I'm there wanting to learn, comfortable, comfortable enough to kick? My pants aren't falling down. I understand that, you know, part of the discipline, you know, part of the, part of what makes these martial arts what they are is there is that ceremonial aspect. But when you're just trying to, like, get a kid into it, when you think this is a value, I'm there. I'm there, you know? Very similar to the hat thing, like... For some reason in Taekwondo, I don't even know anything about it, but for some reason in Taekwondo, it became institutionalized that you have to wear a certain outfit. And this guy basically shamed me over wearing sweatpants when I should have been wearing this uncomfortable, I mean, it was like this canvassy material. It was really uncomfortable material. And it's just silly. It's like... That guy should have seen the bigger picture, that it's really cool that I'm participating in this. And if martial arts really is a, a discipline, if Taekwondo really is a discipline and a way of life, me being there and learning it seems like the thing that is most important. Not wearing the right pants. Just like if, if American, being an American and a patriot means something to you, if this country means something to you, a kid wearing a hat at a ball game during the national anthem, he's not even thinking about it. The hat's just a part of his body at this point. But, like, you, you're so distracted by these institutions. I mean, it's midwit thinking. I'm just going to keep going back to that. That's midwit thinking. It's like someone is taught that there is a certain way of doing things, there's a ritual, there's a system, and they start to see everything through that lens when it doesn't make any sense in the bigger picture.
it loses sight of the important thing, which is that, you know, life is the ritual. You know, I haven't, speaking of discipline, you know, I haven't been meditating at all. I'm sure I've mentioned that. The fun thing is, like, you get into meditation and you want to talk about it. Have you heard of this thing called meditation? You should try it. Then when you don't do it for a while, you're like, I, I haven't been meditating. You want to talk about it, which is stupid. It's been fine, though, you know. I, I, I'm not done with it. I just got my entire rhythm got thrown off. And, uh, you know, I always think about that Alan Watts thing, like, you know, meditating not to meditate. And I, I can tell the difference. It's been about two months, and I've probably meditated twice. And when I have meditated, it's been good. I haven't lost... You know, I did it for, I don't know, four and a half years. Consistently, barely taking any days off. So, I mean, it, it's kind of ingrained in me to a certain degree. It's not like I did it for a couple of months and stopped. I developed a very strong discipline and habit, and I experienced, you know, transcendence. I experienced the benefits, and 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 not even the benefits, but I just I understand why meditation is an ancient practice of spiritual value, and I experienced things through that. And I also had non-experience, which might even be more beneficial in some ways. But it's not about just sitting down for 20 minutes or a half hour every day. It's, you know, like I said, like, like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it again. I'm going to get back into the swing of it sooner rather than later because I felt like it, it added something. It balanced something. It's like brushing your teeth where like you can feel it when you don't do it. When I was in practice all the time, if I didn't meditate, it really felt like I didn't brush my teeth or shower or something. It felt like some sort of necessary ritual that had an immediate impact on how I felt. And, uh, but I also, I'm kind of enjoying not doing it. I'm kind of, I'm kind of in this mindset where it's kind of nice because, you know, it really puts yourself to the test. Like how much of what you were trying to do was fixated on just that one act because you don't want meditation to be an institution in your life it's good to have the discipline but you want to be able to live and not do it like if being a decent person and being in harmony requires you to sit every day well that's fine but i don't think it does and uh you know if you're assessing your life if it all kind of comes back to this ritual you do I don't know. I mean, are you really doing it? Are you really oriented in the right way if it all depends on you sitting for 20 minutes every day? I think sitting for 20 minutes a day and meditating is a great thing to do. I have nothing. I, I literally have nothing. I couldn't, I couldn't even imagine coming up with a criticism of meditation. I used to, for whatever reason, I had this stupid opinion when I was younger that meditation was bullshit. And it was bad for you. <laughs> I, I don't know why. I got that's, that just shows you how wrong you can be. I actually thought that meditation was bad for you, just because I didn't like the sort of people who talk about it. And then I became one of those people. But I have nothing. Having done it for years, I don't. I, I would recommend it to anybody who's curious, anybody who's ready. Because when I started doing it, I felt ready. I thought about it. 
I procrastinated, and then once I started doing it, I immediately understood what it was. Yeah, I don't want to say that, but I immediately understood why you do it. But I also don't want, like, my life is the ritual. Living my life a certain way is the ritual. Going to a football game with my dad and enjoying the game, that's the ritual. Wearing sweatpants to Taekwondo and trying to learn Taekwondo and caring about it, that was the ritual. The ritual wasn't the freaking pants I'm wearing. The ritual isn't me wearing a hat or not wearing a hat. The ritual isn't me standing up for the Pledge of Allegiance. That's all just nonsense. Those are lies. They're hallucinations. They're illusions. They're the very definition of dishonesty. Not that doing those makes you dishonest. Thinking those are the, the thing. That's dishonest. And not even deliberate dishonesty. But it's participating in dishonesty. So be aware of that. Be aware of those little rituals that people expect you to do, that they read into, that they treat symbolically. Be aware of those because people are hung up on those. You know, there, there's a Buddhist quote, can't remember the actual source. Something to the effect of like, to the illuminated mind, reading scripture is just like adding more drops to the ocean. And there's, there's a lot of teachings about that, and they make a lot of sense to me. Where I like reading scripture when I'm in the mood. I spent two or three years reading a lot of different types of scripture, and I was very disciplined about it. September 2019, I think it was, I basically spent the entire month meditating and reading scripture. But it's like, it's not about the scripture. It's about it's about your life. It's about your spirit. And that quote makes a lot of sense to me. And I run into this with people. I try not to talk to people about spirituality anymore. I try not to talk about it on here. Sometimes it comes up, but sometimes I feel like people are really focused on the drops. They're like, well, what do you think this means? What do you think about this? So which translation is that? Oh yeah, but this guy said this about it, and that guy said this, and, and this school of thought this. That stuff's all interesting. I'm not knocking that stuff. But for me, it just it never catches me. Like I encounter what I encounter and I'm drawn to to what I'm drawn to. And if you eliminate if you eliminate some of the clutter and barriers inside of you, some of the bullshit institutions you've created inside of you, the piles of crap that you put inside of you and you think are important, when you encounter those things, you know if it's meaningful and relevant to you. You know if there's something there. And you could read all the scripture in the world and never find that. But if you trust your intuition, if you clear a path for your intuition, and so much of life is accumulating all this crap, creating these institutions that are piles of garbage inside of you, preconceptions, your, your hang-ups, thinking that you know how things work, 
misgivings, all kinds of things. They just build up inside of you and they block your intuition from doing its job. But when, you're, when your intuition has its path cleared, it's like you encounter things and you know if it's relevant or not. It's like if you do research, like speaking of the mafia stuff, mafia research has been very interesting to me because you find leads. When you're trying to uncover this hidden world that's been, especially in its early history, barely documented, you find names, places, and connections, and something in your intuition says, like, I need to pursue that further. That's the piece I've been looking for. And it might not be, but oftentimes it is. <laughs> And uh, that's what you're doing in life. Like that's what you're doing when you when you have spiritual pursuits. You're doing research. You're like, I'm trying to learn about this. I'm trying to find this missing piece. I'm trying to find a lead. I'm trying to find an opening. And uh, if you're in the right place, you you know you know which drops matter. You know you know which streams will lead you to the ocean. And once you've made it to the ocean, and I would never say I've made it there, but I have an idea of it. When someone's focused on just sprinkling drops into that ocean or telling you you need to be preoccupied with those drops, those little those little drops, not that those are nothing, but you kind of go like, what? I need, to th I need to be thinking about those. And that's how I feel about people who are way too focused on these, you know, the, these institutions we've created out of nothing, these Ill, elusive, not elusive, these um, illusory institutions we create. Like, there is a time and place to show respect and participate in rituals and acknowledge the sacred, whatever that is. But like that old man who's like, you know, take your hat off. Oh my God, like you're, this kid is being so deliberately disrespectful. It's like that guy's just focusing on the drops. Meanwhile, we're in, the, we're in this whole ocean. That to me is like someone, you need to meditate all the time. You need to read scripture every day. And if you're not doing that, you know, you're disrespecting the um, this system. That's all it is. It's a system. It's like, that's not the essence, though. And it's something to be aware of. Because we all get distracted by that shit. You know, you think about something like not wearing white after Labor Day or whatever it is. I don't even know what the story is with that. But there are people who take that seriously. I wear black socks all the time. I've gotten so much shit for it. People are like, oh, you wear black socks with shorts. I understand it might not look as good, but I don't give a fuck. Like, I don't, I don't care. But people will, will, will tell you, like, oh, you shouldn't wear black socks with shorts. You shouldn't wear this. You shouldn't pair this. You shouldn't do this. They have all these ideas, all these institutions they've created. And it's like, hey, buddy. And, and you know, it's like, that's such a, a distraction. That's so unimportant. You're paying attention to these little drops that mean nothing. And so I've always been aware of that, but I didn't necessarily know how to think of it. 
but it's like these things become traditions. You know, a tradition is an institution. These things become rituals. And people start focusing on these these mi these minor rituals that are based on lies. They're based on something circumstantial that may have no greater relevance long term. And you know, they get so hung up on that, though, they miss the bigger picture. They miss the ocean. They miss the stadium full of patriotic Americans who want to enjoy a football game with their dad. <laughs> Isn't that the American dream? Not whether or not you wear this fucking hat. You know, what a miserable old man. His life probably sucked. To do that to people, your life probably sucks. To police people. That's what I mean by like when conservatism goes awry. Because that's like, cons that's, like uh, that's conservatism. The idea that like you have to, in order to show your dedication to this country and what it represents, you have to take your hat off sometimes. That's conservative gone, conservatism gone awry. The idea that it's about the hat. And we see where progressivism has all those things too. Look at all these weird little institutions they've created in a very short amount of time. These ways that you have to talk, these ways that you have to act. They're all just these little drops that mean nothing. Not that everything is meaningless. They're actually missing out on the greater fucking meaning. The greater fucking meaning. They're missing out on that entire ocean. As a human being, as a fallen creature, you're lucky if you glimpse the ocean once in your lifetime. But it's like if you know it's there, if you have faith in it being there, all these other things kind of fall to the wayside. The rituals become less important because you're participating in a much larger ritual. You're participating in a much larger institution. You're honoring something far greater. And you're able to put things in perspective, which is what we are usually missing. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free.